Matthew 13, 51 to 52. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. Welcome to church this morning. Uh, thanks for coming out and joining us on a beautiful Memorial Day weekend. Uh, as you all know and are probably thinking of right now, there's a lot of races on today. We had Monaco this morning, the Indy 500 this afternoon, the Coca-Cola 600 this evening. This is the greatest day of racing all year long, so thank you all for joining us anyway. Turns out that doesn't matter as much in Colorado, I've learned. Um, so, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, a lot of news to cover. First thing that I want to show, we wrapped up the Gotham Fellowship last night. This is... Yay! Yeah! There is <laughs> some applause. So, I think the Lyle shouts were from two people who were actually up there with us last night. Um, but the, uh, this group... Uh, it went through nine months of some pretty intense readings and uh, discipleship and sharing our lives together. And so we spent a final weekend together up in Breckenridge, got a big Airbnb and stayed. I think it was like the prettiest view that I've seen in Summit County. Literally, we scored on this Airbnb. Uh, you can email me if you want the deets. Um, this is us standing in front of that view, so you can't see it. Uh, but trust me, but right behind us, it's very beautiful. Uh, so we spent this last week uh, gathering together, celebrating the change that we've really seen in each other uh, throughout these past nine months. And uh, yeah, just took a couple of days to honestly kind of gush over each other and say, we can't imagine our lives without each other at this point, which is kind of an amazing thing what God can do through uh, just nine months together. These are dear, dear friends now. Um, so yeah, I want to put that picture up uh, to sort of celebrate uh, another journey that we've been through, as well as, as a reminder uh, that applications are open for, for next year. So that will move from August to May. Applications are open until June 15th, so just another couple of weeks. Uh, so if you are interested, uh, if you are uh, at a point where you maybe feel like you've plateaued in your faith or you uh, just want to make a new sort of commitment, this is a great way to do that. Uh, it's nine months together of uh, reading and growing really intentionally as a small group. So that's coming up. Also, if you saw the newsletter on Thursday, then you will know that we are changing our name and we are deciding on that together. So uh, how many of you had a chance to fill out the survey? Yeah, several, several. Great. So uh, what we uh, learned from this survey is there's definitely one name that most people liked a lot. Any guesses? Nope. It was, OK, so no guesses. I thought a lot of people liked it. Turns out we can go with whatever we want. Um, there's, so the name was Redemption, Redemption Christian Church or Redemption Denver. That was the name that, mo that got like by far and away the most love it votes. But also in the comments, there were a couple of other names 
that seem to be organically presented and gain this kind of organic momentum with them. One of them was Churchy McChurchface, <laughs> which we probably won't go with, uh, but thank you for the attempt. Uh, but we're, so basically what the process is going to look like, we're going to take that clear winner, redemption, and we're going to uh, then create a new survey with the two other options that came up organically in the comment section. Basically, we have one that's such a clear outlier now that uh, we want to basically give an opportunity for that one to be kicked off the podium one last time. So that's where we are in the naming process. Um, so stick with us. There's, there's more to come. All right. We'll go ahead and jump in to the text for today. This is the final sermon in our series on the kingdom, our series, Your Kingdom Come. And we've done this series because oftentimes the kingdom is this sort of other part of Jesus's ministry that we don't consider as relating to the gospel. It seems just like this other thing that he talked about. And yet it really is the center of his message. Jesus says he came to preach the kingdom, and we've seen that his death, resurrection, and ascension are really about bringing about the kingdom of God. So Jesus spoke about the kingdom in parables, and that's what we've looked at through this series, is the parable discourse in Matthew 13. And this is the final statement in the parable discourse. He's moved through seven parables that have described the kingdom, and then he turns to his disciples and he asks them if they understand it. And then in this parable, he's really explaining, if you understand the kingdom, then how should you live? This is where he really moves from explaining what the kingdom is to saying, okay, if you understand it, if you've tracked with me throughout this parable discourse, if you've understood the seven parables that I've provided to describe the kingdom, then how should you live? And that's what we're looking at today. If we understand it, how should we live? What does the Christian life look like? That's a big topic. So we'll go ahead and jump in. This text begins Matthew 13, 51. It's the question of, have you understood? So Jesus says, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes, which is probably about 50% true. They probably about half understood what Jesus was really communicating in the kingdom parables. But we'll give them the benefit of the doubt, as Jesus does. But first of all, let's look at why does Jesus begin with this question? Why does he phrase it in this way? He could have said something like, I've explained to you the message of the kingdom. Have you been born again? Have you been transformed? Has your life been redeemed? Instead, he says, have you understood what I've explained? Have you understood the kingdom parables? And that's because he's tying together a principle that he established in the very first parable that we looked at, which was the parable of the sower. The man who goes and sort of indiscriminately sows his seed, and it falls on four different types of soil. On three types of soil, the seed does not survive, it dies. And on one type of soil, the seed grows and flourishes and multiplies and reaps a yield 30, 60, 100-fold. And the difference between the seeds that die and the seed that survives is understanding. 
It is whether or not you understand the word of God, which is the seed that makes the difference between whether or not you die and whether or not you grow and multiply and flourish. We see that in Jesus' explanation of the parable of the sower, he describes the very principle of the parable, which is why he speaks in parables. He speaks in parables because they have this uh, quality about them where they sort of parse out precisely who can understand them and who cannot. And so he speaks in parables precisely to make that distinction between who understands the kingdom and who doesn't understand the kingdom. We see that in Matthew 13, 19, and 13, 23. It says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. And then the differentiator, Matthew 13, 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. The understanding is the difference. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. So when Jesus asks at the end, do you understand, he's asking the most important question he could ask about the parables. This is the watershed question. What he's asking is, are you, has it been given to you to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven? Have you seen these in such a way where it's gone deep into your heart and it's transformed you? That's all captured in this idea of understanding. Do you understand? Now, I think that many of us have a view of Christianity that it is not something first and foremost to be understood, but it is rather an ethic to be lived. And in fact, I think in our culture, it is assumed that the most enlightened approach to religion generally is that we shouldn't get bogged down in whether or not we understand it, whether or not it's a set of beliefs that we subscribe to. Instead, we should consider how are we living, and are we living well, and are we doing good? And so long as we're living well and we're doing good, then it's actually irresponsible to be so hung up on what we believe and what we understand the kingdom to be. But you see, there's a breakdown in that way of thinking. Jesus puts his finger on it here, and, and, and he makes primary this question of, do you understand? He doesn't make primary this question of, are you going and living well and doing good? You see, when we make it about understanding, we give ourselves this opportunity. All of a sudden, it, a lot of conflict can emerge. Because when we assume we all just know what is good, and we just need to be doing it, and it doesn't really matter what you believe, that clears the space. We can maintain a lot of peace in that regard amongst ourselves. But that's not the way that Jesus poses this. He makes primary understanding. I got an excellent email uh, a couple of weeks back from uh, a lady in our congregation who uh, just got done finishing the book of Job, and she described, I, I feel like, precisely why our way of viewing religion, the sort of enlightened way of viewing religion that says it doesn't matter what you believe, it just matters the ethic that you're living under, uh, why that doesn't actually work. She says this, 
I read the book of Job recently, and the biggest thing I took away from it was that your theology absolutely affects the way you treat your friends and family, especially when they are in hard times. It was really convicting because I've been avoiding defining my own theology for years. Because of past experiences, I associate people who have a very defined theology with being argumentative and slightly mean, which I think is partly why I've been avoiding this. I think that's incredibly relatable. And I think that many of us have avoided this question of what are we believing, what are we holding to, what is our defined theology, because we, we haven't wanted to become like these people that we see are so closed-handed, so closed-fisted with the way that they hold their Christianity that it's actually off-putting. Instead, we've said, you know, let's make primary what seems to be primary. Let's talk about how we treat others and whether or not we're loving each other. And so long as we're doing that, it doesn't matter what you believe. But she picks up on this issue, and she sees it in the book of Job, which is Job's friends had a bad theology. And because they had a bad theology they were treating their friend badly. And she realized that it is our theologies, our beliefs, that cause us to live in different ways. These things aren't actually disconnected. There is no real disconnect between the ethic and the just doing and the belief, which is the why you're doing it. Those are organically connected and they're inseparable. So you can see this in uh, all sorts of ways throughout your life, but one that uh, we're going to zero in on this morning is just kind of an example. It's this great article I read this past week with regards to uh, international development. So this is the thinking that like, is guiding such institutions as like the UN or other giant NGOs that are uh, deciding how can we best intervene in the developing world in order to accelerate their development, help people out of poverty, eliminate disease, bring education. How do we do those things? And you see, there's a worldview, there's a theology guiding that question of how do we help people that seem obviously in need. Now, the article that I read is uh, it's titled, What Good is Religion? It's by uh, a woman named Manini Shaker, and she argues that we have approached international development from a myopic view of just materialism, which is that all people really need are just, they just need money, they just need food, they just need economic opportunity, and then once those things are there, the rest will just take care of themselves. And that myopic view, that approach to human flourishing, has neglected these aspects of humanity that we're finding are equally as important for places to actually develop. Because people also need to experience dignity. They also need to experience a sense of self-worth. And so when we have approached international development in terms of just this giving of resources, 
We're operating from a worldview that describes what people are and what people actually need and what the good is that actually neglects the reality and the complexity of humanity. And so it is this worldview that is informing how we're trying to love our neighbor. It is this theology that is informing what the good is. So she says this. She says, the question of what is a good life and how ought one to live must be perennial concerns of any endeavor aimed at human fulfillment and must be central to both the theory and policy of development. While the answers to these questions might stymie an unequivocal response, they are always worth asking if development is to enable human flourishing. So consider then, if we were to approach international, well, I'll sort of explain that quote real quick. So what she's saying is, if we aren't starting with the question, what is a good life? What do we believe human fulfillment actually rests in? If we don't start, that, start with that question, then we're going to be doing good to each other that may actually be counterproductive to human fulfillment and human flourishing. Our loving each other, our doing good, our acting ethically, when it isn't in line with a higher belief of what humans actually are and what our fulfillment actually rests in, then we can, by trying to just do good, cause just as much harm. And she says that posing these questions, it may remove the opportunity, it may, what does she say? It may stymie an unequivocal response. No more will we be able to say, let's just do good. It won't be that simple anymore. We'll have to hash it out and say, what is good? Why do you think that's good? What actually promotes human flourishing? What's really in a person? What do they really need? And she poses that, these are religious questions, and we need religious paradigms to come into this world to be able to explain them. So she's thinking from a Catholic perspective, which we can absolutely borrow from. But she imagines, what if we thought of this, for our purposes, from a kingdom perspective? And what if we considered human flourishing in those terms? And what if we thought that the greatest fulfillment of a human person, of a human soul, was them being right with their maker. And that they could discover their self-worth in a grand narrative that's taking place through history. And they could gain hope in the fact that God is redeeming all of creation. And they can gain dignity in a free offer of grace that's extended to them. No longer is the opportunity to increase a GDP that actually harms a human soul. See, thinking from a Christian worldview in these things, it adds a layer of complexity that's actually necessary for us to be able to truly love our neighbors and take care of each other. So, this question, do you understand? Jesus starts there before he moves into how should you then live? A lot of us take the opposite approach. We assume all that really matters is how you're living. 
What are the tactics? What are the skills? What are the resources you can acquire? And we aren't asking the base theological question of what makes anything good. In Jesus' parables, we've seen him describe a kingdom that is so valuable that we would give up anything to attain it. Does our ethic include something that transforms our hearts to motivate us appropriately? If it doesn't, and if it's just about a tactic in what we do to improve our lives, then it's not going to work. So Jesus starts with this question of what do you understand? Do you understand what he said about the kingdom? Do you understand the free offer of grace he's made known? If you understand that, if that's clear, then we can move on to how we should live. And that's where he goes next. In the parable that he relays after establishing the understanding of the disciples, he gives us three principles in this, which is to live in the kingdom means to train, it means to treasure, and it means to share. So what we're going to look at is how the kingdom causes us to train, treasure, and share. So first off, have you trained? Matthew 13, 52. I'll read this several times. And he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So what is a scribe? We'll start there. It says, You understand, therefore, I'm going to describe you, my disciples, who he's talking to, as scribes. Now, a scribe was a formally educated uh, master of the, Jew <coughs> excuse me, of the Jewish law. A formerly educated master of the Jewish law. And now he is saying that, that you are scribes of the kingdom. And he's saying this to a group of people with no formal education, no formal background in training. Yet he's saying, you are to the kingdom what these scribes are to the Jewish law. You've been formally trained. You've been raised up and educated by the word that Jesus has spoken to them. So he does this thing that the kingdom, that his descriptions of the kingdom often do, which by calling them scribes, he sort of pulls us to both ends of the spectrum. He's saying that uh, this is not a formal designation as it has been. This does not depend upon the level of your intelligence or your level of education, whether or not you will be a scribe in the kingdom of heaven. There will be untrained fishermen, as they were, many of them were, that will be scribes, that will be the masters of the law in the kingdom of heaven. So in one sense, it's almost as though it, perhaps the bar is so low, anyone can step over it. And then in another sense, he's calling them scribes, which are those who are formally trained. And he even uses this word, trained. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, there is this reality of engaging with the word to be built up. This isn't a stagnant thing, but it is a process of training and growth and development. That word trained is 
uh, could it be translated as to make a disciple? So they have been made disciples. They have been made these scribes by Jesus, intentionally training them in the word of the kingdom. So part of this then must be that we must train. If you understand the kingdom, then you must be training. You must seek to be made a disciple of Jesus. You have to seek him in his word. A lot of us think, uh, my, my faith seems stagnant, it hasn't been developing, as though faith is something that just kind of like happens to you. And yet the word of God is sitting on your nightstand, unopened, unexposed, uncharted. And that's how it happens. It happens in the exact way that we see Jesus engaging with the disciples. Jesus speaks, and the disciples ask questions, and then they wrestle with those answers. And the process for us is exactly the same. We look at the word. We ask questions about it. And we wrestle for answers. That's how we train. So the question is, have you been training? Do you have a rhythm in your life that exposes you to the word? Do you have a consistency of prayer that brings you into the presence of God in the ordinary experiences of your life? If we understand the kingdom, if, if us Christians are, are the hope of the world for us to be able to speak the transcendent into the everyday experiences of the lives of our friends, what hope do we have of being able to do that if we haven't trained in the kingdom? If we haven't spent consistent quality time in his word, if we haven't prioritized sitting in silence before our God, so that we might realize the transcendence that's around us. If we don't have that, if we haven't trained in that, how could we possibly think we have anything to share? So, have you trained? Have you trained like a scribe? Next, have you treasured? Matthew 13, 52, and he said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So after discussing their identity as scribes, he brings up once again this idea of treasure. He actually now finally moves into the parable. You're like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. We'll get to the new and old bit soon. But first I want us to see this word treasure. Because this is the second time that it's come up in the parable discourse. The first time is Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven. He says the kingdom of heaven is, is it's like this. It's like treasure that's hidden in a field that a man finds and he covers up. And then he goes and he sells all that he has so that he might come back and buy that field. See, part of our training, part of our understanding is that it creates in us this desire to have it. It's different to just understand something. But there's a different thing to treasure it. 
We see all sorts of things, but only certain things do we see and say, I want that. And to treasure something means that very thing. It means that the value of the kingdom has been worked so deeply into your heart, you understand it with such a clarity that you actually desire it. That the kingdom to you is something you really want and value and treasure. So what we get here is this sort of a heart that's motivated differently. It's trained, but it's trained to enjoy this thing that it treasures, that it desires. It's trained, and when it's training, it sees this beauty that draws us towards it. So it is not enough just to train, but we must treasure the kingdom. Earlier in Matthew, Matthew 6, 19 to 21, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If you treasure the kingdom, your heart will be there. What this means is we aren't allowed to just play intellectual mind games with the word. We aren't allowed to gain new, like, arguments and, like, worldview tools in our tool belt to try and argue and persuade someone into adhering to our belief system or something like that. We can't engage with the word dispassionately. But engaging with the word, that means you have to risk your heart. You have to read things as though God wrote them, and, and if that were the case, then he's actually prying things open about yourself. You have to be exposed in order to treasure something. You have to risk in order to treasure something. So how should you live? You need to train you need to treasure, and then you need to share. So have you shared? I'll read the parable for the last time. Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This bringing out of his treasure is a sharing of it. It's a demonstrating of that which is most precious to you. And if we're trained in the kingdom of heaven, we will be bringing out of this treasure, this good news of the kingdom. We'll be sharing it, both our old and our new. John Calvin, uh, speaking on this passage, he says, he says that teachers are like householders who are not only careful about their own food, but have a store laid up for the nourishment of others, who do not live at ease as to the passing day, but make provision for a future and distant period. The meaning, therefore, is that the teachers of the church ought to be prepared by long study for giving to the people, as out of a storehouse, a variety of instruction concerning the word of God, as the necessity of the case may require. 
See, when we've been trained in the kingdom, we'll be able to reach back into this storehouse of biblical wisdom, into this paradigm-shifting understanding that Jesus has worked to redeem all of creation, and by his Spirit, he's providing us the wisdom to be able to join in that process. And so, what that means is when we reach back into this treasure, into this treasured understanding of the gospel, we'll be able to bring it out to bring to bear on the world an understanding that in a lot of cases will bring more complexity to an issue, but can also focus us on the outcomes that we actually desire for each other. So if we return to this idea of international development, which we'll kind of use as a theme to think through these things, International development started basically by uh, Harry Truman after World War II. And he says this, For the first time in history, humanity possesses the knowledge and skill to relieve the suffering of these people. He's referring to the billions of poor around the world. I believe that we should make available to peace-loving peoples the benefits of our store of technical knowledge in order to help them realize their aspirations for a better life. You see, thinking through the lens of the kingdom, we're able to look at that and say, that's really good. That's a very good thing. And... It's not the whole picture. When we look through the lens of the kingdom, when we look through the message of the gospel, the understanding that we have, we see what ultimately do humans need for a better life? What is really the problem that's in the way of humans experiencing a better life? Is it skills and technical abilities? It's a part of it. But what's fundamental is that they were created to be worshiping a God that brought alignment into everything that they did. And instead, in a self-centered way, they've completely rebelled. And so when when we're moving towards human flourishing, we realize that there's more to a hungry person than just their hunger. There's not less. We ought to consider how do we alleviate the hunger, how do we alleviate the physical pain, but there's more. When we're thinking worldviewishly in this, we'll, we'll have a true understanding of human flourishing and therefore a true understanding of human nature. And then we'll have a true understanding of what allows people to actually change from our nature which is just the grace of Jesus. And then we'll have a hope that we possibly could change amidst circumstances that we otherwise never would have even dared hoped for change in. See, when we're thinking with this sort of treasure, when we're bringing out this treasure, it complicates things. But it brings to bear on the world this incredible hope. 
So, lastly, what is new and what is old? There's a lot of debate as to what that ambiguous phrase means. But Matthew, earlier in the passage, when discussing Jesus' parables, he, he quotes Psalm 78.2. He says this, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. That reference gets picked up on in the New Testament and used to describe one thing, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What was exposed that had been hidden since the foundation of the world? What is this new and old thing that we bring out of our treasure? It's old because it had existed since the foundation of the world, and it's new because nobody had seen it. It is that in our deepest problem of sin, God did not leave us to try and discover some tactic that would pry us out of the pain that we live in. Instead, he completely gave of himself. And he took on the punishment that we deserve for our sin upon himself that we might be set free. That belief that the fundamental component of all existence is God and that God demonstrates his love for us while we're yet sinners, that belief, understanding that belief, causes you to deeply treasure God in such a way that you would want to share him. And it changes then the way that you think you ought to help people. It changes the paradigm of what you think doing good is. That belief is the most critical component, that God has offered his free grace towards us. And so we need to consider all the complexity of his world and consider how can we offer that free grace towards others. So with that, let's take some questions. Cool. Have you trained? Have you treasured? Have you shared? Let's pray. Uh, <clears throat> after I pray, we'll take communion together, which is a way of physically representing Jesus' broken body, his poured out blood this thing that is both old and new, this fundamental belief that reshapes our whole understanding of the world. This is our treasure, and it's meant to be savored. And this is meant to show us that this is not some airy, ethereal thing, but it's tangible. That God really showed us his love by becoming one of us. And that he's calling us to show his love in the world but only if we understand his love towards us, then we can show his love in the world in just as tangible of ways. It'll be hard and it'll be complicated because it's people, 
but he's given us a treasure to share, to do that with. So with that, let's pray. Father, your word has these joys hidden inside of it. Lord, that sometimes takes so long to just stare at before they show themselves to us. Father, I pray that us as a church would have a, a hunger for your word that's motivated by a deep joy, even a sense of wonder at who you are and who you've shown yourself to be to us. Lord, w- would you make us foolish before your word, that our questions wouldn't stop as we continue to pursue who you truly are. Would you shape us by it? Would you wash us by it? Would you renew our hearts? Would you show us your treasure and then empower us to share it? Father, I lift this up in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find more audio as well as study questions and sermon notes at l2church.com. If you have any comments or questions, feel free to shoot us a message through the contact form on our website. Thanks for listening.